Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrewer, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision-making. I'm here with Nick Hare and Peter Coghill of Aleph Insights and also with our special guest, Jerry Smith of CHC Global. And this week we're discussing insuring against a nuclear war. Nick, um, Jerry looks familiar to me, but can you um, introduce um, Jerry to to us and, and our audience, please? Yeah, well, I, uh, attentive listeners will will remember Jerry from the podcast we did about the Global Terrorism Database. Um, I've known Jerry for a few years now, and uh, we uh, when we get together, we always end up talking about uh, interesting things. But his his professional uh, job is to is head of advisory at uh, CHC Global, mm-hmm. and um, and he deals with malicious risks. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was an interesting enough topic, but particularly this question of um, uh, of of the insurance market for malicious risks, which, from what I understand from speaking to Jerry is kind of weird and interesting and there are some things you you which is very difficult to get insurance for mm-hmm. and i think it'd be interesting to talk about why mm. i'm interested to hear what malicious risks are um before we do uh, jerry beyond what nick has said can you paint a picture for us of yourself what's your background where have you come from what's your story yeah well thanks very much for having me on the podcast again it's a real pleasure to be with you guys um so yeah jerry smith from chc global i have a background in the military uh, and then i was in uh at DSTL for a while at, uh, at Porton Down, um, working with the government science side of life. Um, and then I was in the United Nations for a while as a weapons inspector. So my background's been for the last 30 odd years is, is managing and dealing with malicious risks uh, in all their kind of forms. Um, I can give you a, a quick breakdown of what malicious risks, my definition of it is, is basically it's bad th- people doing bad things. Okay. And the challenge of that is that um, it's people are intelligent. Those Those adversaries that we face are intelligent they can adapt to uh, changing circumstances which means it's a real challenge to try and understand what their threat is what their capability is and their in- intentions and how that manifests itself into a risk that can that can harm us um can you give us a couple of examples of what we might be talking about so when we're talking about an adversary we're talking about a bad person and and generally extreme the extreme level which is what we we deal with at chc global is is around terrorism non-state actors they uh, as far as capability is con- concerned you know terrorist organizations or the the, the the larger ones have the greatest capability they have access to to finances to to brains and all that sort of thing to actually be able to develop some kind of um, capability to actually do a bad thing, whether it's a bomb or an attack, uh, and the intent they want to do it. They want to they want to put forward their political, uh, religious, or ideological extremism, and and that's they they consider violence or the threat of violence to be the uh, the, the medium that the, which they uh, conduct that. Okay, so some high level examples, high profile stuff might be things like nine eleven, for example. That would be about the highest profile thing. A- absolutely, yeah. I mean that is that is. Um, if you look in kind of well uh, the effect that that happened uh, both in kind of financial consequences which is where the insurance industry is particularly yeah. interested but also in you know sadly the, in the loss of life as well which yeah. is it's very much out there as the as the outlier hmm. okay great um or not great in a way but um nick peter over to you guys yeah, I mean- so i suppose my 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 question so it would be interesting to know if if terrorism was like say burglary where you can just get insurance for that and it's fine, um, then you know no problem, right? So you can uh, you can as more or less mitigate what that loss might be. 
if, if you can get insurance for a terrorist attack. But from what I understand, it's not that straightforward. The market for terrorism insurance is kind of unusual. Or... It is, it is. And it's essentially around to data. And it's about understanding the patterns and the quantity of data that you have in the past. So in terms of burglary, I mean, burglary is malicious in so far that somebody is doing something bad to somebody else. But in some ways, it's not kind of personalised. And it's not as if necessarily that the burglar is going to do any more harm than actually acquire the goods that he wants to nick off you and take away with you and then you know, probably sell or take for his financial gain. When you get into terrorism, you're dealing with individuals and groups that have something more than that. I mean, terrorists might still conduct burglary to acquire funds, but that we're talking about sort of the definition of terrorism and we had a, did a whole podcast around definitions before, but essentially you're talking about um, you know individuals who have an extreme political, ideological, or religious driver, which means it's not necessarily financial. So it's pushing more than that, and that means that their their intent to do something particularly bad um, is much much greater. The good side is it the frequency is a lot lot lower, but but the lower frequency means less data to actually look at, analyze and, and consider and does that mean that people don't don't or don't feel comfortable kind of pricing the risk is that is that why I, it might be worth actually just to, sort of saying how an insurance contract might work because we can't assume necessarily that listeners would would understand that but how how what does an insurance contract against a terrorist attack sort of look like and sorry and also as a part of that would this always go through Lloyd's or does it some kind of go direct through the companies or but yeah anyway i don't know if that's related or not i'll quickly cover off the lloyd's one first so lloyd's is a market it's not a it's not an insurance mm. company yeah lloyd's is just like it's the equivalent of your of your town or your village market okay and where it is is all the insurance companies wrong all the insurance companies who are registered with mm. lloyd's they go through so lloyd's is essentially a market what it does do is it provides uh, quality and consistency and reliability so people know that if they're buying through a Lloyd's underwriter they are they've got these sort of additional guarantees that they're dealing with a quality product and and, and assurance that for example that there is a, a mechanism for um, for the process to in, to ensure you're getting quality there are other insurance companies that choose not to to operate through Lloyd's um, and there are either standalone markets or, or similar uh, sort of arrangement so that uh, brokers who are the who are the individuals who are acting on behalf of the the insured the people that want to uh, to make that risk or to to, to to get somebody else to own their risk and they pay money for it that's essentially what insurance is all about so i get so i go in there the equivalent of my fruit and veg in the market yeah is i have let's say a thing that says right you give me a million pounds if someone if i get if i'm a victim of a terrorist attack and i'll pay you fifty thousand pounds a year and that's is that what that's that goes that's is the thing I'm selling, and that fifty thousand pounds that will go up or down presumably. But through a broker on. as well. But anyway, yeah. well, it, for firstly, it's it it for, certainly for terrorism, it's through a broker. Right. So we're talking about risks here because so the, the insurance value chain is something we could spend a lot of time on. But essentially, the brokers are, are broadly are, are between the. Um, between the insured, the people that have the risk, and the underwriters. And the broker's job, and this is actually written within the Financial Conduct Authority's rules and regulations, is jobs is to represent the insured. Okay. Right. So they're going out those to those markets to find the best, the best product, the one that is most appropriate for the requirement. 
Now, as far as the insured's concerned, they have this risk, which has a value. Now, yeah. one of the first things they do is they might need to help to understand how much that value is. So yeah. how much do they want to insure? Because obviously the bigger amount of money that they want as a payout, the more premium you're going to be paying yeah. for, generally. So it's about understanding that risk. And essentially, as I said, it's for them to pay somebody to take that problem away from yeah so so i so let's say i might look at my buildings and the value of my business which might get lost and add it all together and come up with some figure like a billion pounds <clears throat> so i go in and i say i want i want a billion pounds if if a, if a bomb goes off in my building and then the broker goes and finds someone who will put a price on that and say okay well i'll i'll pay you a billion pounds if this happens but you know you have to pay me a hundred thousand pounds a year or a thousand pounds a year or a million pounds a year depending on how risky it is is that right absolutely yes yeah. so that is more or less it that's more right, or less it? it the key thing there is that the underwriter is doing an awful lot of maths to make sure that he believes that essentially the the, the that's a good uh risk to take on sorry you look like you were going to carry on there but um because what i want to say i can't remember what your question was because i know you went to my question first have we got onto that but also i want to make sure we bring in peter yeah. once you've answered that bit jerry so I've got one, one last, one last question. So, yeah. You did have a, a question, didn't you? And then yeah, you yeah. had a question. I answered what, yours, and I can't remember. Well, yeah, what no, was yours? So, well, I, I guess it comes down to this: like, why, why can't you get insurance against like things like a war? Or um, well, can you though? Yeah, can you? So you can what are the get, limits of what I can you, get insurance on. So you can buy a war risk. Um, now, the key thing about an insurance organization underwriters, of course, clearly they they are potentially looking at a whole range of risks, and they want to underwrite those and they want to to take that risk off their off their clients and they're paid money for that but the issue is is, is all around uh, a term sometimes used as a, called accumulation so if you have an event that impacts a whole range of clients mm. and each of them have insured for let's say a million pounds um you might well find out actually you're on the hook not for one client with one million pounds but in fact a dozen clients for that one million pounds even though it's just the one risk so you don't occurred. you don't just have a war against uh, against me. It would also be all of the people who live nearby. Exactly, it'd be unusual to have a war where they just picked on one yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So, so so you have um, so what you have is this idea that you can you know you you can spread your risk so far, but something like a war, which one would imagine is a kind of I wouldn't say universal, but it would it's going to affect the whole country mm. or a whole region. Then suddenly, your all your risks are accumulated into one thing. So if you're insuring property in London, for example, um, and London is getting hit by lots and lots of bombs over a regular period of time, you can imagine that very soon the insurance company is going to run out of money and is going to go bust, and then nobody gets paid out. So it's a bit. It would be a bit like a horse race where there's a chance that all the horses might win at once, and you have to pay out for all of them, sort of thing. That's yeah. that's an analogy I'll run with. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, let's bring in Peter. So, so Jerry, is it does it come down just to a lack of information then? Because terrorist attacks are relatively infrequent compared to, say, car accidents or burglaries, um, it's it, you have less information, so you can do less accurate modelling. So you can you you uh, the underwriter is less able to accurately predict the risk of certain types of events. Pretty much so. I mean, I think you can split that into two things. Firstly, you've got you're absolutely right. The, the frequency of events is relatively low, um, and therefore, just you know, from a kind of statistical point of view, an actuarial point of view, trying to establish what a pattern might look like is is a challenge. 
Um, secondly, is around the fact, and this is the malicious piece, is that you've got actors generally who are rational now they might be not rational up in our minds but if they're rational in in how they go about wanting to achieve their aims however irrational those aims might be mm-hmm. to us then they can they can observe they can modify they can conduct reconnaissances they can change their minds to the extent where they can attempt uh, one method of attack that fails somehow or is intercepted, so they go for a second one. So you've got that kind of shifting target. So trying to, and then trying to understand in the future what those factors might be that change their direction mm. and can change the direction pretty quickly. So the classic uh, example is is the attack in Barcelona that happened a few years ago, where the terrorists originally were going to uh, manufactured these improvised explosive devices. Now, as it turned out, they had an accident in manufacturing that improvised explosive. The house they were renting blew up. It killed a couple of their their comrades. So the individuals that were left then decided to do um, that uh, vehicle attack and then the knifing attack down the Ramblers. So you can see how, how they changed. Now, mm. that change was no no rational predetermination. Their plan was to make bombs. That fails, and within a day, less than a day, they're doing another type of attack. Now, how you predict that could be a mm. real challenge. Yeah, but, I mean, aside, so the, there's a sort of intelligent nature behind these attacks which make them inherently complicated like the 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 model to model these kind of attacks would have more variables than say a burglary you could you could say um well so i i had a thought uh, that it's it's not just the amount of information but the kind of type of information that you've got right so we've kind of systematized for want of a better word burglaries and car accidents because they they're relatively low impact and there's lots of them. So we can sort of categorize them as sort of like driver's fault, external fact. You know, we've got like a cat- simple category system for them all. And there's lots of them. So we can park lots of examples in each different category. And I guess they're kind of relatively cheap as well. And they're right? relatively, they're yeah, the impact is small. Yeah. yeah. Um, but with, I, I, I figured that, like there's something about the nature of infrequent things that are high impact that are, make them slightly make them different so beyond the intelligent nature behind them but so the 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 attack the sort of a knifing attack in london and things where where and then miraculously the guy sort of warding the fellow off with a big um tusk of a of a narwhal narwhal tusk yeah Yeah. Yeah. the 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 the, there's kind of like there's something really (laughs) fascinating about the human (laughs) stories around these incidents not only of the of the people the the assailants but also of the people around you know the the victims but also the you know the the police that intervene and everything else it's fascinating it's really interesting so i there's like there's a nature the information seems to be different so you get you might you might read the paper and say oh there's a car accident on the 83 you know there's burglary in cambridge or whatever that's all you kind of. That's about the. That's about as deep as it gets. The information you don't hear about the backstory of the burglar or the whatever else, but you do when it's a terrorist incident. You hear about all the stories, and we put monuments up and things. So there's like, it's like it's sort of. I, I'm wondering if there's a, a function, there's something going on in the actor's brain where it goes, well, I've got all this information. This seems like a much more complicated problem than perhaps it actually is. If we just dealt with it purely statistically, and in a very kind of uh, uh, broad brush, categorical kind of way. Actually, it would be simpler to to to, to predict. You know, if we just sort of treated it uh, with you know pure instance, maybe if we draw parallels between a terrorist attack and something other malicious, like maybe a burglary or a large scale kind of criminal activity, maybe we could just model it more simply and come up with good models that would allow us, as insurance brokers, to make money or um, provide us provide services to 
to, to people. I'm just, I'm just thinking, maybe What's like the question? Getting, so are we getting... Is the nature of the information we get about terrorist attacks kind of confusing us and preventing us from being so able noise. to... noise. Yeah, yeah, well, I think is, is the noise. question is, is the insurance market a bit irrationally afraid yeah. of these risks because they think there's something weird about them? I mean, look, Jerry, what, Paul Ree... That's you. It would be quite in- interesting to explain what that is, um, but also like why why that had to be invented, because um, you know my my I I, I suppose like Peter, I, my instinct is well, there's no such thing as a horse that's unbackable. There's just a horse that's there at the wrong price, and it's like look if this horse is you know an unknown quantity, well that's fine. There've been unknown horses before. We we sort of know what we're doing. So why did we have to set up the this pull re thing, and how does it work? Okay, so before you answer, Jerry, uh, just to summarise where we are at the moment. As far as I can see, what we've said so far um, is that um, these high-impact but low-frequency um, risks are difficult to measure because of the lack of a data, mm. and it's, and so it's not like insuring your car where there's plenty of data, right? So far, I think that's all we've said, as, unless I'm wrong, okay? And so... I, I don't know what the Paul Ree thing is, well, so I'm interested. I, I know, out. I'm interested to hear about that. But the other thing I'm interested to hear about is us three are just kind of thinking about this or talking about this a little bit at the moment. Clearly, Jerry knows this better than we do. But surely in a market like Lloyd's or, 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 the, or the wider market, um, they've got teams of analysts who think about this stuff all the time, and they've got their special risks. Are you saying um, they might know more than us they might. here on the sofa and speculating? Do, do, you know, I mean, I guess they would just chuck it in like, okay, this is going to be like a hurricane, and, like, and, and, and assess in that kind of way. But surely the market, if it's functioning properly, will 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 figure it out a little bit more. They don't have the data, um, but you know, yeah, my, my risk, they is, themselves are risking a lot of money. Yeah. This the insurers my, as well. I suppose to, to call it, just to sort of summarise my question, it's it's like partly are they irrational, but are they trying to make their comp- models too complicated? Could we make it? Could we have a simpler model? Lots of stuff there, Jerry. Um, especially, I, I mean, I don't know what the Paul Reed thing is. Um, Paul, um, Peter had a question there. Jerry, go for it. Okay, so in terms of um, the the differences and and potential complexities around terrorism and those malicious risks um the insurance sector recognizes those frequent low impact events attritional losses and they they they, that's part of their raison d'etre uh despite what you you might think uh, i mean insurance companies want to pay out you know Mm. you you are actually don't have a particularly good business model if you're the insurance company that's known to not pay out you won't be having many clients within a couple Mm. of years and you'll go out Mm. so insurance companies and it's all about a ratio okay they've just got to make a bit more that comes in than goes out so that they can operate as an organization okay and that's servicing the customers and again if customers um uh, lose out and, and are not paid out appropriately they will go elsewhere um, and 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 so it's about longevity. With with in terms of in, in insurance for terrorism, which again is is kind of the proxy for the most extreme of malicious mm. risks, without taking into account war, which would bring us into a, a whole new level. And, uh, and 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 cyber is for another whole podcast because right. cyber brings a whole bunch of other yeah. risks and issues in there around attribution and all sorts of things. But in terms of those infrequent high impact risks, firstly. There's not very many of them. Mm. But secondly, if they occur, like the 9-11, if the US government had not bailed out the insurance sector, the whole of the insurance sector in the US would have Mm. collapsed, right? Mm. Mm. Now, that would have then meant nobody gets cover. And then the second and third order order, uh, implications of that are business doesn't have confidence to operate in the United States, business flight bang okay so you need to have that kind of insurer of last resort which essentially is the government Mm. 
Or the taxpayer. <laughs> well, and ultimately the taxpayer. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. No, they're too right. It's our yeah. money. Um, now, Paul Ree, you mentioned, Paul Ree Insurance Company, um, they were set up in the early 90s, essentially as a result of the IRA, one of the big IRA bombs that happened in London. And the reason was that before that, terrorism insurance was essentially part of property insurance. So you'd have all the sort of perils of, you know, uh, the wind, windstorm in the UK, whatever bad that was, and terrorism would be in there. Mm. Then the IRA turn up with some big vehicle bombs in London on the mainland, and insurance companies just say, okay, we're not going to provide terrorism cover anymore. Mm. Now, again, that kind of potential loss of confidence and the fact is that big businesses wouldn't operate in London, the government looked at that and said, okay, we need a system that means that it will give confidence to the underwriters that if a loss is is catastrophic, it won't mean the end of the company. And so Paul Ree was set up by an act of parliament with a definition of terrorism, a definition, not necessarily, there's, not, there's no one UK definition, by the way, it's a definition, which is in the act. And essentially what that meant was that the that, that companies that went into that scheme and you weren't obliged to do it, you became part of that scheme, was that some of the premium that you're, the insured paid to you for you to underwrite that risk, some of that premium went to Paul Ree, and Paul Ree banked it. And the idea was was that you had, and, and a, a, a mechanism of levels was, was organised so that there were essentially limits. So if it was a relatively low loss, the insurance company would cover it. But when it got above a certain level, then the money then the, the money above that level was then being paid out by Paul right. Ree. And essentially, so this is this idea you're insuring an insurance company. So how, how often does it get dipped into, do you, if we know that or not? So, no, it is. I mean, it's all on the Paul Ree uh, website, and you're now going to put me on the spot there. They've paid out a few hundred million, I think, for, right. since, they, since the 90s. Have they, but have that they got pot a has pot built up. Yeah, yes. they're literally building up a pot of cash. Absolutely, yes. And it's about, in something or it's about seven, seven or eight billion quid now. Right, so that'll cover a 911. No, it wouldn't. No. Oh, okay, but it, but it, it would cover what half, uh, uh, half a nine, well, four and so, a half nine one, one one. So here uh, we go. <laughs> here we go. Is around um, what does a catastrophic look like? Yeah. So it's back to this idea that when you're looking at terrorism from a from a, uh, a low impact, high frequency, those attritional losses, they've got that covered, and that's kind of baked in. The more the larger the losses, they become less frequent. Then you're starting to potentially have to dip into into the pot. And the beauty of the Paul Ree scheme is that that is re-reinsured by the government. So that if the... It's, a, it's, right. it's about seven, eight billion quid, plus actually they buy some insurance themselves. So basically, if you breach the, the 10 billion pound barrier, you then go to the government and the government has said, we will cover yeah. beyond 10 billion. But presumably, and presumably, like I would, you would know that because I would have an insurance contract that said, this is how much I get. Or are there insurance contracts which are... A, you know, unlimited, or is it always, is it? Well, well, no. So when you're doing that underwriting, you can't, so one of the key fundamentals around insurance is you can't have betterment. So you can't say, I've got a 5,000 pound car, I'm going to insure it for 10 grand. So if I smash it up, I get right. 10 grand. You can't do that. You've, you've, you, uh, so the insurance companies are well within their rights to look and look at the asset that you are wanting to insure and make sure that you can't take advantage of that, you know, because it's not free money, it's coming from mm. somewhere. Um, yeah. Stupid question. Why is it called Paul Ree? So pool, as in you're pooling your risk. Oh, pool, not pool. Paul. As no, in no, no, Peter pool, Paul, as in right. swimming pool. 
Okay. I was going to say, otherwise, Paul would be a pretty, pretty sort of there's also world f- upon his shoulders guy going around. Maybe, going, maybe yeah. he was the MP that kind of... No, no, no. no. There's also a flood re, for example, and a nuclear re. Got so yeah. do okay. same things. Oh, nuclear re, that sounds fun. <laughs> is that nuclear accidents or is it nuclear yeah. wars? Nuclear accidents. Because if there's a nuclear war, I guess there's probably not going to be much insurance company left to pay out. <laughs> I, I was just... Uh, right, yeah. wait, Nick, 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 before you do. Okay, so uh, just to say, we're uh, I'm we're kind of about two-thirds of the way through, okay? Yeah. Um, whenever we've got a special guest like Jerry, we really need to make sure we make the most of, yeah. of having them. So my sort of challenge to you two is this, right? It's time to really get to it. Your most important questions. Let's get to the heart of it. What's what's burning in you? And I think I probably want to go to Peter first. If you've got something, if not, we'll go to Nick. Well, I suppose Jerry, let's start. Let's start building some products here. What what are the big Uninsured, currently uninsured or uninsurable things that we could start more as LF Insights, we could start modeling and start developing insurance products on. Yeah. And before you answer that, and sorry, I keep doing this, guys, and sorry, Jerry, but I presume where CHC Global fits in on this is you provide um, a consultancy service to the underwriters, maybe others, um, that helps fill in that sort of lack of data that they have. And maybe that's what fits more or less with, with Peter's question. Have I got that more or less right? Uh, kind of. We, we provide both uh in technical information yeah uh but also we have a brokerage as well so we ah. actually will go out and do so we we're on the, as well we broke, sit yeah. on the nexus of of being essentially if you remember the four t's from what you can do with risk you can treat it you can transfer it you can tolerate it, or you can terminate it mm. what we're doing is that we we advisory side which is where i fit in is around uh, treatment and giving advice on how you might treat a risk how you might lower it yourself and then we can also then put it over to our broker colleagues who then can go out to the market gotcha. and try and find how you uh, how a client can transfer their risks okay and so yeah on to peter's question what should alf be doing yeah, alf, you know? alf insights insurance department wants yeah. to start making insurance put your uh, products what 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 are the risks that we we think that we could model but aren't currently being fully 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 explored by the market well, that's a fascinating question for, to ask me on a podcast because, you know, if I seriously thought that, I'd probably be having conversations yeah, be, with you yeah, and, yeah. and inquire around this one. Yeah. But look, okay, so, well, don't, give the, don't give away the crown jewels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Less interesting one. We're, we're talking about uninsurable risk. So actually, you know, things like war are, in, are insurable. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you can imagine that the premiums are pretty high and it's not as if you necessarily take a kind of a universal thing. So companies may well take war risk coverage out, particularly for things like vessels. Um, but also, um, you know, if you're if you're actually operating in a um, in a warlike environment. So, um, Jerry, just a, a question about that. So, so if I yeah, if I had a, a, a I don't know an oil tank or something, and it and it's going through a war zone. Yeah. Um, is it am I allowed to not insure it against against a war type uh, or an act of war or but you know or you would um, have to face your owners and and shareholders right, they would be a bit so, they would be I mean, like why, I mean, why didn't you so get this you know insurance? life is all about risk yeah. right mm. and and you you guys know that as much as anybody so it, 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 it in that case the risk ownership is with with the owners of the vessel because you haven't yeah. shifted it yeah yeah onto, and, and, but yeah, also I mean, the owners of the oil that you're transporting and, for and, example and they might, do get in trouble quite routinely when the captain's not been qualified or there's not been enough crew and something goes wrong and the insurance says you're not covered because you've uh, you've you've not been operating within the parameters that we've given you and absolutely and this is the thing i mean we talked about one thing about betterment with insurance and making sure you know you, you can't improve your situation by taking out insurance but there are other things around the, the 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 policy guidelines so what they call the wording and so what you're trying to do is put um limits left and right and it's not to reduce you know the chance of 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 the of the company paying out money but it's about just putting boundaries on what are the risks defining 
clearly what are the risks that are yeah. being covered because if you don't define them then it can be any risk and mm. then you get into but there, there's and also risk, risk, risk policies are kind of a two-way street it's about being it being there as a last resort to pay out when something goes wrong but also as a mechanism for ensuring or encouraging good practice so a shipping insurer will will say well we we think that this code of conduct is the best way to operate ships so we'll put that in our policy to encourage sh- sh- you know, newcomers to the market to up their game a bit and be just generally better and less risky. And and that's exactly, again, we'll bring it back to motor insurance, that's exactly why you get things like the NCAT racings for car vehicle survivability. That was a bunch of insurance companies getting together for an organisation to, to, to collectively reduce risks mm. and therefore... Firstly, it's beneficial to the public, but secondly, it actually the whole market doesn't have to pay out so much yeah. because Marcus, those risks are being, being reduced. The market's more predictable, less turbulent, so more pe- yeah. more people can operate. In yeah, the I guess this reminds the, me of sorry, this just reminds me of this issue of moral hazard, which is uh, you know well term in that I encountered in philosophy, which is about um, you know that, well I, and actually in economics where um, you know if you you might incentivize people if there's something that incentivizes people to. Um, well, I would say misbehave, but, you know, behave more riskily, mm. then, um, you know, then that, that obviously is a big issue in insurance. So, for example, you, I don't think you can get insurance for, for example, failing a test or you can't get insurance for your business um, making a loss and mm. things like that. Because it's if you had that insurance, you would then be incentivized to actually yeah, sort of make that happen. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so and there's lots of uh, there's very similar ones like that. I mean, broadly, there are two uninsurable types of risk there's ones where which is certainly is going to happen so you know trying to get life life assurance for if somebody who's got a terminal mm. disease i mean i know we've all got we're all terminal yeah but but you know it, it, you were talking about in the term of, of the, the cover might be so trying to to ensure somebody who's uh, who's got a terminal disease you, you can't get but uh, or inevitability or, things. But it's, isn't that? I mean, presumably that's just because the price would be so high, no one will pay it. Like, well, it, it, it ends up being a one-one, doesn't it? Yeah. Because it, yeah. Uh, you know, ultimately, it's inevitable, uh, yeah. and therefore there's no element of risk there. The other thing that you can't insure is for things like, um, you know, for breaking the law, you can't insure, for example, back to the moral hazard thing, you can't insure yourself of not, you know, going to prison, for example. Um, Interesting. Is that where is that the market we need to invade? <laughs> we need to disrupt the market. Well, well it's for, badly, to for ba- badly behaved CEOs. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. No, if we said, said, yeah, if you go to prison, we'll give you a million pounds. But reassuringly, yeah. reassuringly, all of this falls under the Financial Conduct Authority on the Prudential Conduct Authority. So actually, the UK again is a kind of bastion of insurance. And bear in mind, huge amounts of global insurance goes through London. Mm. And part of that is the assurances that companies get that if you are FCA regulated, like CHC Global is, is you're actually buying that, uh, you're being assured that by using companies that fall under that, that that is the kind of quality mark. Yeah. Um, uh, and you think that our new insurance product might not achieve might not. that quality <laughs> mark. Well, um, you we may well have to. Well, we can always operate overseas. Uh, you'll have to operate from overseas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. Yeah, yeah. no problem. Yeah, Turks yeah. and Caicos is quite nice. <laughs> okay. Um, shortly, I just want to move on to something slightly lighter. But before we do, Nick, is there any sort of big question you still need, would like to ask Jerry? Um, or indeed, Jerry, if there's anything that's you know you're thinking of that you'd like to talk about, but I, the uh, only Nick thing first. I just thought I'd mention, um, just almost quite a simple point, but why people might be thinking, well, why if something's infrequent, why does that make it harder to uh, price? But I just I think you know it's thinking about that 
even I can answer that. But yeah, well, like, if you think about the distinction between a one in a fifty year risk yeah. and a one in a hundred year risk, yeah. right? They're really not going to look very different in terms of how often they happen. It's going to be very hard to tell them apart, isn't it? Give with, the with even like give the time examples again. The well, frequency one in every fifty years yeah. versus one every hundred years. Yeah. Like yeah. if you imagine over a hundred year period, it would be very hard to tell those two risks apart. You know? I wonder if we so, think so that. So the point, but the point is that one is actually worth twice as yeah. much, you know, as a as a risk. But I wonder if we, you and me, think that. But some analyst um, who's listening to this right now is going, "No, I definitely yeah, don't think I that." Do that. And, and I've, I've got, got loads of information <laughs> yeah. about that. Um, any question for Jerry? Well, no. I mean, I think we've we've covered lots of interesting things there. Right. So this is a bit we come to a fun question. I don't have a fun question. Oh. Um, because also I would have asked you previously, and I, I confess I can't remember the question. I always ask our guests, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? Um, but I must have asked that, so I, yeah. I can't ask that again. Um, although, what would you do? I can't remember. I think he was, you said something. Did you say physicist or something? I don't made that No, up. I'm absolutely not bright enough for anything <laughs> like that, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, and yeah. So what would you do? I, I have no idea. Okay. Uh, the comment I made last time was that I, I trained as a mining engineer. Uh, and you made it. a gag about mines. Yeah. Um, that hilarious <laughs> Coghill wit. No, no, I did. That was yeah. brilliant. Yeah, there is. That's good, actually. What, what was it? Just remind me. Just like oh, because I, I was in Bob Disposal, includes landmine clearance. Ah, yes. And yeah, I yeah, went yeah. and did mining engineering. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, different mine. Anyway. I remember something that someone said to me once is, oh, God, I just couldn't be... It's a guy who worked on the analyst, analyst team. And he said, I could never be an underwriter. I don't know how they, those guys sleep at night, okay? Um, because they're the guys who are making, and the girls making the decisions, In right? their four-poster beds. Yeah, their yeah they're very houses. well paid, yeah. you know, but they're sort of taking on big risks for their companies, potentially, but also potentially making lots of money for them as well. My question is this. What keeps you awake at night? What do you... Because you seem quite a, a solid, stoic kind of guy, Jerry. What, what, what do you worry about? What risks personally do you worry about so for me the risks that i worry about the ones are the ones that we're not usually worried about um years ago when i worked in humanitarian demining the number of 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 my guys and girls that were hurt because of landmines was relatively few the number of them that got hurt because of car accidents was a lot higher in terms of fatalities and, and bad injuries and it's that idea that you're particularly focused on a risk you're dealing with a risk such as you know, a, a minefield or in it. And, you know, you're, you're absolutely on your game. You're very, very conscious and you may well take breaks and, and you're very, you know, very much considering all the actions that you might take. And then at the end of the day, you're relaxed, you've done your job, you get in the vehicle, it's a thing that you've done 10,000 times before and you lose concentration and it goes. And, and, and so... Actually, the, bizarrely, yeah, the risks I'm worried about are the benign ones. The ones you, the way you just take your eye off the ball? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I've heard that apparently most injuries, uh, hill climbing, happen on the way down. Mm. Because people, by that time, they think they've done the hard bit and just slack off. Mm. But mm. similar thing. I guess it's that sort of um, road accident thing as well. Majority of what, within a mile of your house or whatever, when people are on automatic pilot sort of thing. And it's that everyday sort of thing. Yeah, well, don't, I mean, don't people most, you know, most accidents, most fatal accidents are in your own house, right? Yeah. I think. Mm. But 
I think that's right. Yeah, um, so actually the thing that should keep Jerry awake at night is his stares. <laughs> the great menace. But, but we already know that he does his... worry about yeah, them. We know yeah. that. That's why he lives in a bungalow. <laughs> yeah. um, it was that, what is it, or get rid of the, the tea, get rid of, you know, terminate the risk or whatever. That's right. No um, no more baths. Well, we've asked, we've asked, actually, I should have done this the other way around. We've asked Jerry, I should have asked you guys what you worry about. What are your, what, what are your, I should have done you first and then go Jerry. But let's go to you guys. Uh, Peter, what do you worry about? Um... I can kick it. I can go in if you want. Yeah, go on. I think boringly, you know, I worry like any middle-aged man with kids. I worry about two things essentially, which is are my kids and my wife all right? You know, are they okay? Are they healthy? And um, I do worry about my wife as well when she goes off driving as well. I, it's partly because of the way she drives, but it's partly because of how dangerous driving is. Um, and of course, my health. You know, I, I do worry about my health and it's sort of, you know, I've got a bit of a pain in my throat at the moment. Well, that surely that's, could it be? I'm sure yes. it is, you know. This it's, is the big one. Yeah, yeah. so I, I do worry about that. But, you know, I, I, you know, I should, maybe I should worry about that. Not just worry about it, but take the appropriate steps, you know. So. Yeah, I suppose I, I'm a bit of a kind of fingers in the ears uh, guy when it comes to, uh, I, I, yeah, I guess I just don't want to think about that. And so I, I, the things I worry about is, you know, discovering that my flies are undone during the <laughs> meeting. So social kind of awkwardness, social I think that's much worse. Yeah. Uh, yeah, much worse than your entire family dying. It is, it's a bit having <laughs> discovered that your flies are undone. Yeah, yeah. Peter, I suppose. Well, it's not witty, but I suppose I worry about. I'm not sure what I should be worrying about. Ah, the so things sort you of, don't worry about. I've got a sort of meta worry. It's like, okay, so I worry about, I worry about my health in all, and then and then my ability to sort of provide for my family and all the kind of normal things. But I don't know to what degree I should be worrying about these things. Which one I should worry about the most? And indeed, what are the things that I'm not worrying about that I should be worrying Perhaps about? Perhaps Jerry can get you insurance against something you haven't thought of. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a thing happening I haven't thought of. Yeah. Pay out a million pounds. Yeah. That's the Rumsfeld, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Rumsfeld policy. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, um, anything else? No, that's great. I think we're good. All right. All right, we'll stop there. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrew. We've been here with Peter Coghill and Nick Hare of Allop Insights. And, of course, we've been here with our special guest, Jerry Smith of CHC Global. Thank you so much uh, for coming here and, and educating us, I feel, and giving us an insight into your world. That was, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks, as always, for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>